Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode six of the Between Movements podcast. Today, I'll be interviewing soprano Megan Stapleton, a terrific musician and a great friend of mine who has some wonderful insights into the musical world. This podcast was recorded with live video, so if any of you are interested, please go check out my YouTube channel. It's josh.v.music. There you'll also find some of my vlogs about classical music life and several performances and recordings. So in today's podcast, we'll be talking a little bit about musicians and identity, going into topics like the Meyer Briggs system and how we're both INFJs in music. If you don't know what I'm talking about, please stay tuned because you'll uh, definitely learn a lot. Megan has performed with the Boston Early Music Festival, the Ars Lyrica, Mercury Chamber Orchestra, Houston Bach Society, Ensemble Correnti, and Lumidia Music Works. She's also the founding member of the chamber ensemble Houston Baroque, with whom she released the album My Soul Sees and Hears in 2016. Megan has performed extensively in various children's programs with the Houston Grand Opera. She has also appeared in several operettas and Golden Age musical theaters, performing three leading roles with Houston's Gilbert and Sullivan Society, and has regular performances as a featured vocalist for the Paul English Jazz Trio. She holds degrees with honors from New England Conservatory and Sam Houston State University, and she is currently a teaching fellow at the University of North Texas, where she's pursuing a Doctor of Musical Arts degree under the vocal guidance of Dr. Stephen F. Austin. I'll go ahead and play a few musical examples of Megan performing both classical and jazz excerpts, and then we'll get into the interview. Hand. 
so here we are on Between Movements podcast episode six. I'm with Megan Stapleton, and welcome to the program. Thank you. I momentarily forgot we were videoing this, and I made a face. It's so. <laughs> great. We have the tea and everything, oh, so yes. we're good to go. All right, so we're talking about a couple different issues, um, mostly centered around music, musicians and identity. In fact, you wrote this paper, uh, which I'm going to allude to. This was originally going to be your DMA dissertation topic, right? And then yeah. you decided to change it. Yes, I did. Okay. Um, so this paper is entitled just... Musician, musician identity. identity. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's entitled Musician Identity. Literature review, so okay. simple title. So what made you interested in this topic of musicians and identity? Well, after I finished my master's, I spent a few years in the performing arts field hustling for gigs. And, uh, and that requires a lot of grit, I think. And I started noticing a pattern, um, not just with myself, but with people around me. Uh, this struggle, this kind of cycle we would go through. And one day when I started my doctorate, I was in performing arts health, my performing arts health class. And I said, okay, there's this thing that I'm seeing. What is it? And I went to the chalkboard and I drew this cyclical diagram. And I explained to my teacher, Dr. Chris Chesky, who's great. I said, okay, this is what I'm seeing. We go into these auditions and singers, especially because of the young artist program track, we audition or at least apply to audition for 30 to 50 places a year on mm -hmm. average. And we have to pay for these auditions. And then sometimes we don't even get auditions and they take our money, which is another topic. And uh, so we go to these auditions and when we succeed in getting the gig, we there's a little bit of confidence put in our tank and we've, our identity is affirmed. And the next time we audition, we're more likely to succeed because our vibes are good. And if we fail, then we get kind of cut down and our confidence gets chipped at a little at a time. And the next time we go and audition, maybe we're more likely to fail because we're feeling kind of bummed already. We're losing our hope. And so we go through this cycle that's just kind of unhealthy. And I said, what is it? What is it that, that I'm talking about? Is it self-esteem? Is it, what is it? And my teacher said, oh, you're talking about identity. And I thought, oh, that's what it is, of course. And he said, go look at the athletic identity research because the athletes have had so much um, research poured into them on this topic and musicians not so much, but we're so similar that you can draw a lot from that. So that's what I did and it was really interesting. Right, there's this thing called the Athletic Identity Measurement Scale, or AIMS, mm -hmm. and you, it's a multi-dimensional model for athletic identity that was developed by Brewer and Cornelius in 2001. Mm -hmm. So um, there's a lot that's been done on research for athletes, but not so much musicians, right? Yeah. So did you immediately come to this idea to compare musicians and athletes, or was that your professor's idea? Yeah, I would. I want to give him credit okay. uh, for leading me in that direction. Having been a, a former athlete myself, I already knew, you know, that there were so many similarities between my life as an athlete and my life as a musician. And uh, 
in the formation of my character. I thought, okay, I definitely have experienced the things that the athletes have experienced, both as an athlete and as a musician. And uh, so there's so many correlations because musicians share with athletes the competitive mm-hmm. um, field, right? Yeah. We, we, all, we have to be competitive in both fields. And we have to practice all the time. And we have to be super aware of our bodies yes. in as, as far as we're using them to perform, mm-hmm. right? So, and for singers, mm-hmm. well, I mean, we all use our bodies, but for singers, your instrument is your body. Yeah. So um, you guys, I feel like, have it even harder in the sense that if you're sick or you have a cold or something... I've played many gigs with colds and, you know, I, I <laughs> I'm so envious. Up, <laughs> yeah, we lose a lot of money when we get a cold because yeah. we have to drop gigs. And yeah. That's not fun. And so this leads to this concept, which I'd never really heard of before, called identity foreclosure. Mm. Um, can you explain a little bit about that concept and what that means? Yeah, I love talking about identity foreclosure because it's so prominent uh, in our lives as musicians in general. Not, just saying in general, but um, so identity foreclosure is the idea that we tend to focus on one identity, and as musicians, that identity is being a musician most of the time, and we do this at the expense of our other identities. We all have multiple roles mm-hmm. that we play. I'm a singer and a runner and a writer and an aunt mm-hmm. and a daughter, blah blah blah, and a friend, and. But it's, unfortunately, I have been guilty of pouring all of my efforts into my identity as a musician. And that means I'm foreclosing the other identities. I'm not nurturing those identities. Those Mm. identities aren't growing. And so there's no balance in life. Right, right. Yeah, for sure. I I realize that there's a little bit of a link with that. And I don't know if you're familiar with domain dominance, this idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so basically... You, I looked it up after you emailed okay. me. <laughs> yeah, so it's the idea that you, as a musician, like you said, we focus so much of our energy on our craft. And the skills that we use there, we don't necessarily apply to other areas in our life. Mm-hmm. So like if I'm learning a score, the attention to detail, looking at it as a whole yeah. versus um, you know, thinking internally, okay, what am I doing? What is the audience hearing? And, um, a lot of those skills could very well be used in, you know, relationships and things, but for whatever reason, people just have a tendency to isolate, isolate that. Exactly. How to create more holistic identities in, in the studio so that it's a balance of perhaps, performing and teaching Mm -hmm. or performing in something else. I actually, if I have performance majors in my studio, I encourage all of my performance majors to develop a skill in another area. Mm. And I might give them a list. I haven't created a list yet, but I have one in my head. It could be journalism, photography, writing, teaching, not that most of these are as lucrative or any more lucrative than Bro, yeah. singing, but if you can piece them together or something, business administration for me was, was a big thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, but something that maybe they can make money doing. Mm. So, but you could go work in a restaurant, <laughs> so, <laughs> no. but something so that when they get out, oh, I see. they have, they can be performers, but their whole existence doesn't hinge on whether they succeed as a performer. Mm. Okay. So, for me, when I, I decided, even though my mom wanted me to 
double in music therapy and performance, I said, no, I'm just going to be a performer. I'm just going to, because if I have any other options, I will quit. I might quit and I don't want to give myself the option. So I decided I would just perform and I got out there and I did it. And, and I had some success, but I didn't have, um, I, I didn't, I didn't develop identities in other areas like we were talking about before. And and that was in a way limiting. So with my students, I say, you can be a performer at the Met, that's fine, but I also want you to choose some other area to develop skill. So mm-hmm. it can be entrepreneurship and business, it can be sound engineering, something. Yeah. So that they're leaving with a bigger bag of tools to use. I, I really <laughs> wish I had done that earlier. I mean, right now yeah. I am, trying to educate myself more on entrepreneurship and business and those things because mm-hmm. musicians are really bad at it usually. That's right. <laughs> a shame because we need mm-hmm. to more than ever we need That's to right. we need to know these things. That's right. Let's have some tea. Yes. Yeah, so let me tell you about my tea. So okay. I brought us some tea because this is how I like to spend one-on-one time with people and um I have a collection of teacups that my my mom and I started collecting a few years ago and we'd go to antique shops and look for the teacups that need a home and I always think that they all have a legacy you know a different legacy and that now we are adding to that legacy and so you're adding to the legacy of this teacup right here and I'm making a memory with you and this teacup great what kind of tea is this well I know that your favorite is chai but I didn't have chai (laughs) because I don't keep black tea in my house Okay. Um, and so this is pumpkin spice, and nice. so hopefully it will be similar enough to chai tea that you will drink it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Great. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> nice. It's very pumpkiny. You like it? <laughs> I do. Good. <laughs> Feels so proper. <laughs> yes. I'm just used to black coffee. So you mentioned that some schools are trying to promote this more sort of holistic view of identity among musicians. And that's partly because of the high emphasis placed on the value of performance, like in relation to teaching, for example. Mm-hmm. And in general, it seems like there's sort of a narrow view of what it means to be a musician when the student enters the university system. Um, And so it's not really realistic that every music student uh, will have a successful performance career. We all kind of enter the system thinking, well, at least most performance majors, we kind of assume a lot of things. Like we're just going to enter, we're going to have this successful performance career, and that's the way it's going to be. But I mean, statistically, that's just not the reality of things. When you're 18 with your head in the clouds, you don't look at statistics. (laughs) (laughs) But how do you think schools could change that narrative and be a little more realistic and holistic about the approach? When I was researching um, and doing this literature review for musician identity, one of the studies I read uh, suggested that the studio teachers have the most influence on the formation of identity in their musical students. And I think that's empowering as a current teacher myself. I teach undergrads at UNT and I try to shape a holistic identity in them even now. I like to ask, what are your goals 
What are your goals? Is your and then some of them will say, "I want to sing at the Met," and it just breaks my heart because not that I want to hold them back at all, and so I will never tell someone, "No, that's not going to happen." But I say, it's a long road to hoe, <laughs> and it's fraught with challenges. I don't want you to not shoot for the moon. Shoot for the moon, but you've got to look at the stars mm-hmm. also, and you have to acknowledge that all of those stars, some you don't even see are also success and you're still in outer space right (laughs) so and for me i've landed in the stars and they're really shiny you know (laughs) um but they're so different than what i expected i thought i would be a full-time performer of course and i held on to this for longer than I should have probably, you know, I just was determined to beat the pavement. I was going to force it to happen. I was going to white knuckle my way to the top. And part of that is being an INFJ. Yeah. (laughs) Which we'll talk (laughs) about. We'll definitely get to that a little bit later. So being my personality, I mean, navigating the professional waters as an INFJ Mm -hmm. has unique um, challenges, I think. But... I have more balance in my life now as a teacher and a performer and and I'm able to pour in to these younger performers with the wisdom I have gained by going the hard route, right? Mm -hmm. And figuring out that most people, like, and I mean most, the vast majority of us are not going to be full-time performers, but we are going to be professional performers. Yes. It's just going to be pieced together with teaching right. and podcasting and and other things, writing. And all of those things have merit and value. And we need to start acknowledging um, being a writer and being a teacher and hosting a podcast are equally as valuable as performing. And as performers, I mean, I think it's hard to get it through our heads because we are taught at the university, just through the culture. It's not, no one's doing it on purpose, but through the culture, Mm -hmm. performing is the highest status. Performing is the goal. And if you don't become a full-time performer, you have failed. Yes. Well, we're in an interesting place as millennials too, Mm -hmm. because well, all of our professors for the most part are from a generation or two before us. And the internet changed everything. It really changed everything (laughs) for performance. I mean, now... I have to say it's probably harder than ever to be a full-time performer, meaning that that's all that you do. Mm-hmm. Um, even full-time performers struggle because everyone is streaming now. I mean, yeah. um, streaming all your music and nobody buys records or mm-hmm. very few people buy records or CDs. Mm-hmm. Um, so you kind of have to branch out, I think, more than ever before. Yeah. And so the people who are in academia from that generation where they were able to perform and now they're professors it's the world that they know. And so the world that we have now, we're kind of in this weird pioneering state. So like the podcast for me, um, I mean, this is all sort of recent and I've realized that I I have to branch out. Like you said, the the stars and there's so many different stars. Like you can look at... You can build your own constellation. (laughs) (laughs) Something like that. It can be beautiful. Yes. Yeah. Well, the other thing you can do too. So that's... That's one thing. It can start changing in the studio, which then can branch out. But then also, I think 
the individual has to do some work. We have to work in ourselves and fight against the status quo. We have to fight against the culture. And, and that's the hardest thing. I think it's very brave to decide my success can look different from what the world says and then live into that decision. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. But I think that as individual performers, that's something we have to do. We have to change the culture in ourselves yeah, I try to look at the bright side of it, too, because being an artist is, um, I think by definition, you have to try new things and experiment and sort of go places you haven't gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still see um, younger students entering university and, and expecting kind of the same things. Yeah. And I talk to people who are graduating with me, and they all expect the same things. So mm-hmm. not just performance, but or I'm either going to perform... And then when that doesn't work out, they assume, oh, I'm going to teach at a university and that's going to be my job. But again, the the reality of that is also statistically not not true. I don't want to think about that because that's my next step is applying for things. But you're right. I think about all of the the doctoral students who are graduating and looking for the same 20 jobs. You know, I I was hearing because there's, um, at least in in piano, there are a lot of uh, DMA students from China and they all go back and want to teach at the universities there but Mm -hmm. there are so many doctoral students graduating in europe and america from china that apparently now several of them are fighting over like teaching kindergarten jobs with a doctorate um but i mean that's bound to happen right i mean it's just if more and more and more people get this degree then there's there's not as many opportunities but you know, the great thing about the internet, although it's changed everything, is it provides these new opportunities mm-hmm. to branch out. So, Well, going back to what you just said about um, valuing performing over teaching, right? Mm-hmm. This book is from 19... Let me see. I brought it with me because I figured we'd talk about this a little bit. It's from 1926. Yeah, 1926. Okay. And this is my new dissertation topic. Oh, what is, what's the name of this? This is, it's called Singer's Difficulties. It's by Kate Emile Benke. And she has such an interesting story. I'm writing about her family. Mm-hmm. And she was the daughter of Emile Benke and Kate Benke. And they were all voice teachers. Okay. And Kate Emile Benke was raised literally from the cradle. In fact, one of the articles says from the cradle (laughs) to be a voice teacher. And her father set her on this path and created a curriculum for her. And she started training, I think around age 10 and became an opera singer. He trained her to be a performer, but then also the only reason he trained her to be a performer was so that she would eventually teach. Mm -hmm. It was all because he said, he didn't believe that you could teach someone to become a performer unless you had experienced some of it. Mm-hmm. But, but meanwhile, he was teaching her all about voice science and pedagogy. And so she was so well, um, so successful and so well established in that field. But she says here, I confess I am horrified when on inquiring of the majority of those who are studying singing, what object they have in view, I am told, to be a public singer if I'm good enough, and on asking, and if you are not good enough, to get the dejected reply in tones of deepest disgust, oh, then I suppose I shall have to teach. 
<laughs> and she says, as long as this attitude exists, we cannot expect to get the teachers the art of singing needs and must have. Yeah, I've uh, yeah definitely encountered that. <laughs> and that's back to that status thing of uh, kind of like an athlete with performance being the ultimate the mm -hmm. ultimate thing, and somehow teaching is viewed as not. But I don't know. Teaching's great. I mean, I accompany several of your voice lessons, so. Um, you're gonna tell on me now. <laughs> no, but even I mean, you're you're a little newer to the teaching world than I am. Correct? Am I right? Is mm, I that, think so. How long have you been teaching? Yeah. Well, I taught a little bit in my undergrad. Okay. And then I didn't after I was like I taught for a year in my undergrad, and then I decided that was nice, but I'm going to, to just perform now, and um, and then I taught a little bit when I lived in Houston, but only off and on. I would have HSPVA students who sang at my church. Mm -hmm. um, they would have a lesson every once in a HSPBA. while. HSPVA? The Houston School of Performing and Visual Arts. Ah, okay. So, anyway, um, but yeah, I'm, a, I'm new. Can, well, you, can you tell? <laughs> no, no, I, I mean, it's, it's just great because I've, I've accompanied your students for, what, three semesters now mm -hmm. or something? So I've seen, like, the evolution of your teaching and it's it's i think one thing people don't necessarily realize is that teaching like performing is a craft in itself mm -hmm. and it you grow in it and mm -hmm. you understand it more and more and i think it makes me a better performer yeah because it, it makes you practice what you preach you have to <laughs> you're telling your students to do one thing yeah. and then you realize oh I'm, I'm not doing it so yeah it keeps me in check at least yeah for sure it's it just reinforces everything that we work on in our own practice and I, it's my I think my my teaching has evolved partly because I've had the tutelage of Dr. Stephen Austin who's mm -hmm. an amazing pedagogue and it's been great to be in his classes and to also be his student and pick up the strategies and methods that work and certain patterns I feel like I'm a combination of athletic trainer or coach because of my athletic background and then like Mary Poppins <laughs> <laughs> and uh, John Keating from what's it called? Oh, poet, dead poet society. Oh, oh, right, you know, right, right. that's, that's how I kind of feel. <laughs> imagine myself in my role, but um, it is a journey and I, I love it because we get to overanalyze, which we love <laughs> and we get to, communicate and find the words that work for each person and I always think of it as like working on a car but you can't pop the hood and look at the engine you just have to tell the engine how to go yeah it's definitely multiple roles and I was never much of an athlete but I I do I think more and more see the correlation and the whole coaching aspect because mm -hmm. yeah I feel like I'm almost something of a psychologist with my students like right. it, it's weird how I can hear them play and watch them play and understand how, how their week was. Right. <laughs> yep. Just, I, I mean, I've been around it for so long that it's like, okay, well, but I've seen the patterns in myself. Right. I know what it's like. <laughs> and you're probably an empath like I am. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So those energies, as soon as they walk in the door, it's just whoosh. Yeah. And I feel what they're feeling. And mm -hmm. sometimes, as a, I'm sure with you guys too, for singers, especially maybe because this is the communicative instrument this is we use our words mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with this instrument and and so it, this can get blocked off sometimes if we're not speaking up for ourselves we don't have boundaries or we're tired and stressed yeah and we're not taking care of ourselves and these students come in 
Yeah, it's, I mean, emotions and mm-hmm. feelings affect the physical body mm-hmm. and they cause tension. For us,、yeah. I think it's mostly tension here、mm. in our shoulders. Yeah.、Um, just when I'm stressed, I, I'm not as fluid. So, I, I mean, part of what I've learned and what I like to or try to communicate to my students is the importance of like just physically taking care of yourself.、Mm-hmm. A, a lot of musicians, I think, don't. But I mean, just going to the gym and stretching is. It's so important for me. If I don't、yeah. release you know, all the、yeah. tension in here, then I feel like I can't play. I feel like I don't connect to the instrument as well.、Mm-hmm. So I definitely want to talk a little bit about the whole INFJ thing, or for those who don't know what we're talking about, this is the Myers Briggs personality test.、Mm-hmm. And it's one of several. I know I looked this up, and there are at least 10. There's the big five, there's the Hexaco personality test,、mm-hmm. and there are several more which I haven't taken. Right.、Um, Myers Briggs is based off of Carl Jung's theory of, of how people think and act. He didn't develop the Myers Briggs system, but it's based on his work.、Mm-hmm. And so it's four letters、um, that describe. So, the first letter is either extroversion, introversion. Second letter is either intuition or sensing. Then it's feeling or thinking. And then judging or perceiving is the last one.、Mm-hmm. And we happen to have the same personality, INFJ, which is coincidentally the rarest personality. Yes.、Um, <laughs> somewhere between 1 and 3%. And、yeah. I understand it's actually lower in, in men than women. So, I'm like the rarest. The rarest of the weirdo. My dad, my dad is an <laughs> INFJ also. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. I really, you know, there's been a lot of criticism of it.、Um, I mean, there's nothing. Of the no, personality or the Myers Briggs? Of the Myers Briggs. Oh, yeah. And I understand that because, well, th- I think you could criticize anything. You can't、exactly. box people into really any, any box. But for me, it's been super, super helpful. When、yeah. I found this out maybe like three, four years ago. Yeah. Um, and I wish I had known it sooner because it essentially details how a person functions,、mm-hmm. their basic functions, their dominant functions, their recessive functions, and how you learn, how you associate with people, how I am as an artist. And、uh, yeah, how, when did you find out about this? I think I was an undergrad.、Okay. I think it was part of a Bible study I did. Really? Yeah, where we did a, a test. Okay. Or, no, maybe that was, maybe it wasn't. Maybe that was a spiritual gifts test. But I feel like I, I did an, a Myers Briggs at the same time, similar uh-huh, time. Uh-huh.、Um, but anyway,、uh, I find it so, like you, I find it liberating and very informative, especially because as INFJs, we long to be understood and we're one to three percent of the population.、Yeah. So that's, <laughs> we're kind of a little bit different, but in a good way.、Um, But, but it's empowering to read through and feel understood just by reading the, the definition of my personality. Oh, yeah. Like I emailed you this morning.、Um, look at this you know, article I read about INFJ. I am exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know about you, but it was, there、oh, was、yeah. no question. There's no,、um, I'm with, I am an extreme version of an INFJ that is who I am. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, but yeah, I don't know. Oh, but when did we find out? So we took. Yeah, well, we took a research course, music research course over the summer. So it was yeah, one of those intensive, intensive、uh, courses、Five、where we、weeks. met four days a week, I think,、uh-huh. every day. Yeah, just straight through multiple hour class. And then、yes. it was funny because I didn't, I didn't re- realize that you were one. 
And this is, I think, part of being an INFJ. <laughs> We're called the walking paradox yeah. because um, we can kind of fit ourselves into different circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so I actually thought you were an extrovert at first. I masquerade as an extrovert. Right. Yeah. Being a performer, that's easy. And it's not that I'm being fake. It's just I know when I need to give my energy and um, I like to pour out. Mm -hmm. And also being in class, I love to participate and and analyze and 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 it's also that i think it's that tendency we like we like to have connection mm -hmm. and be understood and we like one-on-one -on -one deep conversations and what better place than in a classroom to have a deep conversation so yeah so yeah. It especially a like, small classroom it was like yeah, eight, eight people eight I people think. yeah um and i don't like dead silence i don't like like radio silence in a class <laughs> i can't stand it i have to talk so that i can feel the silence and you know, mm -hmm. but I figure, I don't know. I remember you sat in the corner yes. across from me, like way over there. And I had a feeling that we were kindred spirits. <laughs> there was something I was like, I, I thought to myself, that guy's going to be my friend. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and then of course, that's why, because I was getting your INFJ vibe. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's, it's funny. We even think alike. I think we do. I, I was texting you about the podcast because we hadn't talked about it for days. And literally, I took out my phone and I was texting you called about the podcast yeah. at the same exact moment. So it's kind of funny. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that, you know, not just me, some of my friends who are who are other personalities on the Meyer Briggs, like one of my good friends is ENTJ. I have an ENFP friend. I have an ESTJ friend. And it's funny. They, they all looked it up and... Well, all of them thought it was like the coolest thing when they found it out and they were reading about themselves and mm. how they learned. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think it would it would be really helpful to incorporate those kinds of things. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think the performing arts health department is trying. They may have already done it, but they're trying to establish a, a really big survey for incoming freshmen to take um, just to determine how these so that the students, I guess, know how they operate. Mm -hmm. And I think a personality test is probably included in that. I wouldn't quote me on it, but I think. Yeah. I mean, so much research has been put into it. And um, I've noticed on YouTube that there's like more and more and more content about these things being put out there on a daily basis. And there seems to be a growing audience for it. So, Well, I will say that thinking about my... INFJ personality has also been empowering as I go through some transitional identity work. When identity work happens, either you're trying to reestablish your current identity hierarchy or you're doing transitional identity work to reorder the hierarchy of your roles. Okay, so when I started teaching, I realized. I love performing and I'm never going to quit performing mm -hmm. and I still want to perform as much as possible. Okay. Yeah. Let's put that out there, all you directors who are looking to hire a soprano. But when I was performing only, mm -hmm. I was suppressing the rest of my gifts. And I knew I was doing it mm -hmm. in the back of my mind. But I was just determined, again, to white knuckle my way through and establish a career as a performer. And I started to wilt as a person yeah i wasn't living into my gifts and my callings and i i was unhappy 
So I came to UNT to get the doctorate and start giving myself permission to consider a different kind of career path, uh, maybe a, a differently balanced, I won't say better balanced because there are people who are performing and doing great out there, but for me to have what would for me be a better balanced, a more well-balanced life. And when I started teaching, by the way, I was voted most likely to become a teacher <laughs> when, in high school. It's in my yearbook. Okay. And I remember reading that and going, oh, why? But it's because everyone I went to school with probably knew I was already teaching. Like, yes. That was just part yes. of who I am yes. in my personality. Mm-hmm. And so when I started teaching, I thought, oh man, I feel so good in this. And I love growing as a teacher. And and I love seeing my students evolve as well. And there's just so much that's great about this. Um, and I started to thrive because I wasn't suppressing my gifts anymore. And then I was writing and I was teaching and just being an aunt. Yeah, you know, and, and this is part of where understanding the weaknesses of this personality <laughs> helped me because one of our things is um, well, we try to find deeper meaning in everything. Yeah, we do. <laughs> and sometimes we there's do. just not. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so overanalyzing. And then another mm-hmm. thing is we're very adaptable to circumstances. Yeah, yes. So um, whatever job you take, um, I've always been very, very good at just fulfilling the the wants or desires of my, my, um, my boss or yep. superiors. Right? Mm-hmm. So I just do what I'm told and I mm-hmm. do it well mm-hmm. and like efficiently. Mm-hmm. Um, but often to the detriment of what I actually want to do or need to do. Right. So uh, it took me a long time in my school to kind of cycle back to my original, what I originally was a musician for. Yeah. Like when I, I actually wanted to become a composition major uh, when I started, yeah. but I didn't mostly because I heard the kinds of pieces that were coming out of the composition department and it wasn't what I wanted to make. Okay. Yeah, for me, I've recently gotten back to writing music, mm-hmm. um, mostly on logic. And yeah, it's it's really important, I think, to not forget who you mm-hmm. are. And I would say this to anyone who's going into the school system, not just INFJ thing, but yeah, you, you there's a lot of pressure to just fulfilled a certain role like we were saying about being a performer or something when there's all these other options so yeah the expectations of teachers they'll try to a lot of them whether they mean to or not will kind of tell you okay this is the path you should go down this is what you should do um when it's not necessarily the best for you (laughs) yeah you know with the best intentions maybe yeah i think that i just wanted to make sure that i I was performing because Mm. it's in my heart, it's in my blood. And and when I'm performing, I'm, I'm really happy because I'm able to connect with an audience and pour into them. And then I get their energy back. And I also feel like I'm hopefully I'm connecting the audience to a higher power. I like to think of myself as a vessel, you know, so that they can experience some moment of peace and reflection. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right? Just sit, be still in life. And so it's important for me to continue to do that. And I think because it's so hard to become a performer, 
I thought I have to just put all of my energy into that and not think about <laughs> and teaching because I thought that performing was like my main calling. Yeah. And for a really long time, I thought that and maybe uh, I was allowed to think that, you know, maybe I wasn't in my spirit veered in a different direction mm -hmm. so that I would go through certain experiences to prepare me to be a better teacher when the calling did present itself. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I, I was the same. I mean, I used to practice six hours a day, seven hours a day, sometimes yeah. just crazy. That was all I did. Yeah. <laughs> Very unbalanced <laughs> existence. Very isolated existence. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, I also still love performing. I don't think mm -hmm. I'll ever stop mm -mm. unless, you know, God forbid, I'm physically debilitated from doing right. so. I'm going to <laughs> continue performing. But, yeah, there's there's much yeah. more to it. Uh, there's much more to the equation and it all helps out one another. Yeah. So, and there, the cool thing is, like you say, because of the internet, perhaps there are so many ways we can perform. We can fulfill that desire in creative ways. I, I was part of a group in Houston for three seasons, Houston Baroque, mm -hmm. and we came together ourselves and we did five concerts a season. And, um, you know, we weren't, no one had to cast us or hire us. We just were a group and we were professional and we did an album and, you know, it's things like that to just have, be, having friends with other, being friends with other musicians. Yeah. And mm. being in different fields. You're kind of like me in that you've done a little bit of everything. Yeah. Little jazz, <laughs> little early music. Yes. Little operetta. Yeah. yeah. It's fun. It is fun. I realized also, and this is fairly recent, which I wish I had kind of known about this earlier mm -hmm. is in doing so many different things like doing the jazz or doing the early music or doing you know compositions even like electronic music or whatever i like yeah um this idea of like imposter syndrome oh yeah you know um <laughs> it's a term i hadn't even really heard until maybe a few months ago i'm surprised i hadn't heard of the term mm -hmm. because it's so I mean, it's so prevalent, I think, especially in musicians, who am I to, to be doing this? And you look at everyone so much better than you in this industry, mm. and you're like, well, what yeah. do I know in comparison to yeah. them? And, I'm going to get caught. Someone's yeah, gonna catch and me someone's going to realize that I don't know <laughs> yeah. what I'm talking about. Right. <laughs> even at the end of, and this is when I realize it's ridiculous, because even at the end of getting my doctorate, I'm supposed to graduate in May, I still feel that. Yeah. I'm not sure I'll ever get over that. You know, with this whole like YouTube thing or starting vlogging or starting podcasting. Mm -hmm. Like, what am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> but um I think realizing that that's kind of normal and something that everyone faces and just pushing past that yes. has been like super important for me. Yeah. 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 And just remembering that the most of the time well, especially as a teacher, the people who you are teaching are not, they haven't been where you have been. And so there's always something to give, even if you're growing alongside the student. And as a performer, there's always room for growth. We know that, but but the audience wants to see where we are now. They want to be a part of our journey. Yeah. And so sharing that journey yeah. In whatever it is. And you're sharing your journey as a podcaster. Yes. The same thing. This is one of the actually kind of what inspired me to actually buckle down and do this stuff is um, I was watching uh, a talk by 
this guy was pretty famous, Gary Vee, and he was saying that when it comes to content and people posting content, everyone thinks I need to come up with something. I need to come up with this idea or talk about something new. And he said a more effective strategy is to just document your life, your yeah. journey, what you're going through. Yes. And that made it so much easier for me to just start it because I'm like, okay, I'm on this journey. I'm not where I want to be, but I'm trying to move forward yes. and just kind of talk about that. And yeah. I think people relate to that more because then it doesn't feel forced. It's more yeah. genuine. I had the privilege of seeing my dad speak at uh, uh, the Lions Club in our hometown recently. He's a Rotarian, but the Lions Club invited him to, to do this presentation. Uh -huh. and it was on, so he did this presentation on his childhood experiences in Little League Baseball. Mm -hmm. And he remembered so much detail about his experiences and the ways he grew as a person and the people he came across. And it was this beautiful story. And he presented it so eloquently. And there were tears in the audience. You know, mm -hmm. I cried. It was just this so impactful. And it was just a story about his childhood experiences as a baseball player. Yeah. And I thought, man, I, mean, I said, Daddy, I don't think I can do anything as beautiful as that. Like, I don't know <laughs> if I have a story like that in my heart. And he said, you do. You just have to reflect. And just, it's there. Yeah. Right? And we have yeah. to sit down and, and, and write it out. Right? Yeah. A little at a time. And I was, realize it's there. I was thinking about this the other day when... Um, just a random train of thought, but when you play, well, for your case, sing something mm -hmm. and people in the audience cry, mm -hmm. I, I was thinking of that connection between emotion and music and how, because a lot of the time <clears throat> when I'm playing, I'm so focused on what I'm doing. You have to be, because especially it's memorized and all this, and I'm not necessarily feeling it that mm -hmm. deeply, but people do. And so I was thinking about it, but then I realized, but I have felt it, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't be doing this if I hadn't felt it. Yes. And like all this, I think what they're connecting to is that, again, the story of my life, like the struggle and the work I've put in and the sacrifice I've made for the music. Yeah. And it comes across in such a deep way that I don't necessarily need to manufacture anything. Right. It's just, it's there like in the right moment. When it's right. well prepared, it's there. <laughs> right. That's true. That's interesting. I feel like we could take that two different directions. I've heard before that method actors, oops, I've heard before that method actors, <clears throat> maybe I'm wrong, y'all, thespians, forgive me, <laughs> but that we're supposed to go all the way in rehearsal mm -hmm. until we're just sobbing buckets of tears, right? Mm -hmm. If it's a sad role or whatever, we go yeah. all the way in rehearsal and then we pull it back just enough so that the audience can experience the emotion. Because if we experience all the emotion on stage, then it's just awkward. Yeah. You know, just pull it back just enough that it's still, we're still communicating fully, but we're leaving room for the audience to meet us. And I think, but... I think when I perform, I'm such a, t just, I, everything is, I'm micromanaging and I'm thinking about technique and everything has to be perfect uh -huh. and every phrase is nuanced and every uh, ornament is just, Yeah. but at the expense of, if it's at the expense of my communication, then it's in vain. Yeah. Per perfectionism so, is, yes. is the enemy of, <laughs> yes. of art a lot of times. Right. So my teacher won't let me say a phrase, sing a phrase unless my soul is in it and he knows yeah. immediately and he'll say stop and do it again like you mean it and then the voice just 
comes alive. The technique lines up in a way it wasn't before, even when it was technically proficient, yeah, right? Yeah. Now it's fuller and more beautiful and resonant, and there's something soulful in it, right? So yeah. we have to go there every time. <laughs> yes, yes. What's well, a lifestyle, right? It's a lifestyle, it's a yeah. Lifestyle it's a, it. something to practice and get used to. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Don't forget to stay tuned for upcoming episodes of the Between Movements podcast. And don't forget to check out that YouTube channel, josh.v.music, for more content. And I'll see you guys next time.